For Wednesday, April 8th, 2020, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, Georgia's largest safety net hospital is almost full, weeks ahead of the projected peak of the coronavirus pandemic in Georgia. We are not currently overwhelmed. We are able to put people in critical care beds when we need to, but we are running very close to 100% occupancy at this time. Dr. Robert Jansen, chief medical officer of Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, on how his facility plans to handle that additional capacity and what they're learning about patients with the still novel disease. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. In December, flooding at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta took some 200 patient beds out of commission. That's no small setback for the largest hospital in the state. Then the coronavirus struck, and now the hospital's capacity to care for all of its sick patients is being stretched even more. That's just one thing I'll discuss today with Dr. Robert Jansen, Grady's chief medical officer, who joins me now. And Dr. Jansen, let me start with this. I'm wondering if you can walk me through where y'all are as a hospital when it comes to Putting together a case definition for the COVID patient, certainly this is a respiratory disease, but we've seen reports of other symptoms, uh, GI issues, maybe losing a sense of smell, even malaise. Do y'all have a clear sense at this point of what this disease actually looks like? So our experience with COVID is very consistent with what you see in the literature. Although it is a respiratory uh, disease, there are many different ways that people can present different symptoms. And we have seen a number of people present primarily with gastrointestinal uh, complaints. We've seen people come with abdominal pain without any other complaints. Fever is certainly a common denominator, but it's not always seen. We also see people who present with just body aches, kind of like the typical flu that you would hear, but much more severe. Um, so the, the presentation is not simply a respiratory illness. It really does have a full spectrum of possible presentations, which makes it a much more difficult diagnosis to make. Sure. And, and walk me through then how y'all make that diagnosis, because you anticipated my follow-up question. It seems like this does make it harder. So how do y'all deal with that? 
you have to always assume that somebody may have the infection or have been exposed to it. So you always have to be on alert. So the first questions we ask uh, really center around either exposure, no longer travel, but just exposure within the community to anybody who has been ill, not necessarily diagnosed with COVID, as well as more in-depth questioning about their symptoms, not just respiratory, but other complaints that are consistent with the presentation of the virus, particularly really the, the GI complaints. Now, you mentioned the loss of smell, and that is becoming a very interesting thing because even though typical influenza may cause a loss of smell, this seems to be much more uh, prevalent in the COVID uh, patients. And, and I don't have a good explanation for that. It may be related to the receptors within the nose that are more susceptible uh, to patients who have COVID infections, but it is a very real phenomenon. We are seeing that consistently. Something else that we're starting to see is is more data come out about who has been most uh, adversely affected by this virus. There, there seems to be some early indications that this is hitting, um, you know, African-American uh, individuals maybe harder than others, that their outcomes are, are potentially worse. Is that tracking with what y'all are seeing at Grady? Well, because the predominant population that we serve are people who are the underserved or indigent, and that is a much higher percentage of African-Americans. So the population we have seen that present with infection is pretty consistent with the same patients who we always see. Having said that, the literature is pretty clear that the outcomes do seem to be worse uh, in the African-American population. Our experience is that the people who are recovering um, seem to do pretty well. They don't have any other significant risk factors. The people who don't do as well are the same ones who have more risk factors that we all know um, are prevalent in people who have COVID infections and have higher uh, morbidity or mortality. And if you as chief medical officer know that certain populations are at higher risk, if it even is purely because of certain comorbidities, does that change how you how you treat them? Not really, because once again, we we have a high index of suspicion. So if there's any thought that somebody may have been exposed or infected, we put them in isolation to begin with. We also have been taking significant precautions with our staff, trying to provide them with all the protection they can have. Because we assume that when somebody comes to the emergency department, which is the main portal of entry for our patients, that they may have been exposed or be actually infected. So we're treating everybody pretty much the same now, which is high index of suspicion. If there is any reason to think they may be infected, put them in isolation and treat them accordingly until we can get appropriate tests. On testing, do you have the capacity to test everyone in that bubble of suspicion, people you think might be presenting symptoms or maybe might have been exposed. Can you get your hands on the test to, to confirm that or not? We are very lucky because we have in-house testing now and we actually have several instruments that we use and we have another instrument we're going to start using by next week. So we have sufficient capacity to do all the testing that we need to do for our patients and our employees because we will test employees who are uh, becoming ill. In fact, because of our testing capability, we have actually provided testing for other hospitals during the early phase. We've been working with Children's 
Healthcare of Atlanta as well as Southern Regional, providing them with testing until they can build their own in-house capability. Did Grady have to stand up that testing capability because the state wasn't doing it or, or maybe private labs couldn't fill your need? Well, the state, you know, as you know, was was fairly slow in being able to get the results back and they were receiving, you know, tests from all over the state. So we had a greater demand or need to be able to do it in-house. So that's the reason we went ahead and moved forward with that. The outside labs, candidly, we didn't even look at using because Quest and LabCorp, they were focusing more on the higher uh, incident populations, such as in California and New York initially. We had the instruments that we needed to do in-house testing, so all we had to do was get the reagents and and then confirm the test were accurate and we were off and running. Right now, we can do about 300 a day, and we will have capability of doing twice that within probably a week or so. Do you have a sense of how many COVID patients are in y'all's care currently, and maybe how that compares to maybe numbers that you've seen over time? So we're seeing an increase. Um, When this first started, you know, we would have two or three patients a day that we would be suspicious or were testing. Now, on any one day, we are doing upwards of 100 patients that we're testing every day. We have seen a significant increase in the number of patients who are hospitalized with known infection now because we do have the in-house testing. So our numbers have been increasing. You know, we're fortunate, and I think Atlanta's fortunate because we are behind the peak like in New York. And we have taken a lot of measures within this state to try to mitigate or reduce the number of infections. And and I'm hoping that's going to be successful. So we haven't been overwhelmed, but we are seeing an increasing number of patients on a daily basis now. It was late March that Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said at that point, most of the ICU beds in the city were full. Here we are a full almost two weeks after that. Are you at full capacity when it comes to ICU beds? And maybe are you also close, anywhere close to full capacity when it comes to just regular beds? In terms of critical care beds, uh, because we are a major trauma and stroke center as well as a burn center, we always run fairly high occupancy rates on our critical care. We are not currently overwhelmed. Once again, we are able to put people into critical care beds when we need to but we are running very close to 100% occupancy at this time. We continue to get our normal patients as well, and and everybody focuses on COVID, understandably, but we continue to have our trauma patients, our burn service is full, and our stroke patients continue to come in because those things still occur, and we have to be able to take care of those patients as well as the COVID patients. What is your contingency plan in the event that you do exceed that capacity? Where do those patients go? Well, we have, like every hospital, a number of different uh, sites within the facility that we can move patients that would normally not be used for inpatient care. You know, one example, and it's an extreme, is if our critical care beds are completely taken, we could even use the operating rooms uh, for critical care beds because we canceled all elective surgery uh, several weeks ago. So we have, you know, operating rooms that are currently not being used on a daily basis. So if we really had to, we could use those as inpatient rooms. In the extreme, we could we have other areas that we could place patients as well. I think we've 
developed a capacity for another 100 to 150 patients after we filled every bed in the, in the hospital. Are those spaces that are currently being kind of built out for that capacity, or is it something where once you hit a threshold, then you outfit them? So they are being built out as we speak. Additionally, you know, at Grady, we typically will have between 40 and 50 patients in the emergency department waiting for inpatient beds. That's kind of our normal now. So we continue to build that capability. So if we have to use rooms in the emergency department, holding patients until they can get upstairs in patient rooms, we will continue to do so. You said earlier that a lot of the, the traffic that comes into Grady walks into the emergency room. Certainly, y'all take on a lot of the care burden for the city of Atlanta, thinking specifically about people who might not have access to care otherwise, people who might be homeless, for example. How have you handled dealing with that population specifically, especially in light of the fact that public health officials have said again and again, even if you think you're sick, don't walk into the emergency room. Um, if that's your primary way to receive patients, how do y'all handle that? So our, our walk-in traffic, if you will, from the emergency department really has not decreased. And we're always here for those patients who are underserved. We realize that the homeless population, the underinsured population, they don't have a choice. And we welcome them with open arms as we always have. We take precautions, we screen everybody who's coming into the emergency department, but we take care of whoever comes here whenever they need to come in. Uh, they, they don't have access to calling the health department and going to a, you know, office setting. They, they have to come here for their care. How do y'all address the potential for, say, someone without access to great care coming in potentially with COVID, being sick, being treated, and then released, we still don't know if this virus can reinfect people. Do y'all have any eye on not just addressing the needs that walk in your door, but kind of prevention in the areas that you serve? Well, you know, that is a, a huge concern of all of ours now is what is the immunity once somebody's been infected. Once somebody has cleared the infection, then they can go back, you know, to their home we are very careful not to send people out of the hospital who we think may still be infected, particularly if they have housing challenges or in homeless shelters. So we are very, very careful to make sure under those circumstances that we can document and we know that they are no longer infected. We track all of our patients. We have a follow-up clinic and we make sure that we uh, are able to contact or make every attempt to contact people once they have been discharged, to make sure that they're doing well and getting the care they need. You talked about a peak coming in the state of Georgia. The models show us behind cities like New York, but this is just the first potential peak out of what could be many peaks. How are y'all preparing for the long term here? Because it really doesn't seem like this is a virus that is going away anytime soon. No, and, and so we actually were having that conversation today with the uh, leadership. This probably is going to become more of a chronic illness, and so how we handle that long term is something that we are now beginning to plan for. We know we've got to get through this first surge, but the thought that this would then just disappear is, is probably naive, so we are making plans on how we will handle the continuous uh, influx of patients who are infected, not in the large numbers that we see now, but I'm, I fear that this could be a more of a chronic uh, finding in the, in the city 
and we'll have to be prepared for it. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also rate us and leave us a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If y'all haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.